This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and we are still considering the relationship of the gospel according to John and the mystery revealed through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and number six of this series. The passage of scripture that we read together is Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 15 to chapter 2 verse 7. Ephesians 1 15 to 2 7. Wherefore I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints cease not to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us all who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace he is saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. I read that portion of scripture because one of the objections that have been raised against the teaching for which we stand is that I seem not to have perceived that Ephesians 2 makes it quite obvious that anyone who comes under the ministry of John's Gospel must necessarily be a member of the body of Christ. Now I must be exceedingly thick-headed, I think, because the more I look at Ephesians the 2, the less I can see any reason to believe that it belongs to John's Gospel or any other of the Gospels. But um, this subject has been, has been treated positively. I'm speaking to those of you who uh, may wish to know the tape recording. This has been spoken, definitely, in number 122 of our tape recordings, Seven Steps to Glory. And there we have noticed that the Apostle Paul himself is the only one who links the believer with Christ from the crucifixion to the glory. There are seven steps. 
He says, crucified with Christ. Dying with Christ. Buried with Christ. Quickened with Christ. Raised with Christ. Seated together with Christ. And ultimately manifested with Christ in glory. Now we cannot say that anybody can gate crash into that calling if it's never written about them. It's wonderful enough to know a saviour died for the ungodly. But it's a wonderful revelation to say, and God says that you, believer, at this present dispensation, are reckoned to have died with him and been raised with him. And not only so, but to be seated with him. Now, to be seated with him is so extraordinary that the very term never occurs anywhere else. Christ is seated at this present moment at the right hand of God, far above all heavens and far above all principality and power. And this is the only company in the whole range of the word of God that has got that written about them. Well, how can we say then we can lower the standard in order to include others, however much we may love them and wish it were otherwise? So, I leave that with you. The positive teaching of this sevenfold association with Christ is set out in the uh, number that I've said, 122, and I'm sure you would profit by considering that as a part of this series. So now we are coming to this other side of the truth, another aspect. You remember that in one of Peter's epistles, toward the close of his second epistle, he says that our brother Paul, in his epistles, speaks of this very thing. Well, it's one of the most obvious things to, to believe that one apostle would not live in a uh, sort of closed condition that he would never read anything that anybody else read, had written. We can quite believe that inasmuch as Paul visited Peter and had a talk with him, as we are told he did, and the others, they would communicate one with the other. But he didn't mean to say that they overlapped their ministry and confused their callings. They were very distinct about the fact that just as surely as God had equipped Peter as an apostle to go to the circumcision, so he had equally equipped Paul to go to the Gentile. They were quite uh, uh, clear over that. And here's John. Now we, we have drawn attention to the parable, and on this chart in front of you, that's where we start this afternoon, you notice, the reference to the parable of the uh, king's son and the wedding and the guests. There was the two invitations and they were both rejected. As a consequence of their rejection, their city was burned up and destroyed and then a third invitation was sent out by somebody. Well now the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and burned up in AD 70 and there wasn't an apostle left except one man and his name is John. And we are practically certain that from all the evidence we have that John's Gospel was written last of all. And he would immediately be conscious that this is the ministry which the Lord said would take place after the destruction of Jerusalem so that we see that John had a ministry to fulfill that the guests which were there to honour the marriage of the king's son that is yet to take place would be there. Now, it's an honour to be a, a guest at anyone's wedding. 
It'd be an honour if we were invited, especially the Chapel of the Open Book, to be at the wedding of Princess Margaret. But we shan't be, but it would be an honour. But what an honour it would be to be a guest at the marriage of the King's son, the Lord himself. So don't say, oh, this is only a guest at a wedding. It's an honour. But the guest at the wedding is one thing, and a membership of the body of Christ is quite another. And that is the point about which we are concerned. Well now, if John lived as we understand he did, outlived every apostle, can you believe that Paul's epistles were going round the churches and that John wrote to the church at Ephesus, but he never bothered to read the epistle to the Ephesians? Can you believe it? Well, why should he not read it? Each one would know his own distinctive ministry, but he only too glad to become acquainted with other aspects of the great purpose of God. And so, there were certain things that John could say when he wrote his gospel that weren't revealed before. So I've set out on this chart a little idea just to suggest that while they do not overlap, and while John keeps to his work and Paul keeps to his, there are certain features in John's gospel which make you conscious that now something had been revealed, and that revealed by the Apostle Paul, that John himself could enter into and speak about. So shall we just notice that in the centre of this chart we have Paul the prisoner, and the great title he gives to Christ in Colossians finds an echo in John's Gospel. In Colossians chapter 1, Christ is set forth as the as the image of the invisible God. He's set forth as the firstborn of all creation, and he's set forth as the creator. Let's get that just in passing. Colossians 1, 15. Who is the image of the invisible God? The firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created. Well now, John writes his gospel. And he can reveal that the self-same Christ who figures in Matthew and Mark and Luke is the self-same Christ that Paul speaks about in these wondrous terms. And so when you look at John's Gospel, the first chapter and the first verses, and you will see that there is a sort of a reflection of the same glorious person and attributes. John, the first chapter, and the first two or three verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, the image of Colossians has to do with light. The, fig, the, the figurative language of John has to do with sound. And in one case, Christ is the image to do with light. The other case, he's the word having to do with sound. One may be not quite so vivid as the other, but they march together. And then we have that he is the firstborn. And in both verses 16 uh, verse 15 and 18, we have this title in Colossians. 
First of all, we read in verse 15, he's the firstborn of every creature. And in verse 18, he's the firstborn from the dead. And in verse 18, it's to do with the church. In verse 15, it has to do with creation. So now we have Christ set forth as the firstborn. When we come to John's Gospel in the same chapter 1, we read in verse 14, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he's the firstborn in Colossians, and he's the only begotten of the Father in John. Well, in both cases, this Christ is the reservoir, as it were, from which all his saints can draw. Whether they're members of the body of Christ, as in Ephesians and Colossians, or whether they are associated with Christ as the other sheep which are not of this fold, one flock and one shepherd, whether they're associated with Christ as branches are in the vine, there's a union, and all draw from Christ. So we have the word fullness in John. It says, um, verse 16, And of his fullness have all we received, but he goes on to tell you what that fullness comprises. You see, it's quite easy to jump to conclusions and say, oh, it says we've received of his fullness, therefore it must be identical with what we read in Ephesians and Colossians. But that means to say we've jumped in and we've stopped John explaining to us. So let John tell you what the fullness involves in chapter 1. And of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. Now that's the first thing to stop, to notice. Uh, There are quite a number of words that are translated by the little word for. This one needs watching. For, verse 17 starts with another word for, a very different one. The word for, grace for grace, is the word anti. And the word anti is pictured by a pair of scales. It's the word of correspondence or balance. So he says, now, of his fullness have all we received and grace over against balancing grace. Now, what's that mean? Well, if you don't look at the book, you can argue till the end of time and you'll never get there. But he says, I'm telling you. The next verse, four. Now, that's the word that that means I'm telling you. This is the word of explanation. This is the word of argument. We have received one sort of grace to take the place of another sort of grace, four, The law was given by Moses. That's one sort of grace. Oh yes, I didn't think the law had any grace in it, didn't it? Look at the types and shadows of Christ. Look at the tabernacle service. Look at all the prophets and the promises that are there in the five books of the law. But he said it's all type and shadow. So, the law with its type and shadow was given by Moses. But, now our version says grace and truth. Strictly speaking, but true grace That is to say, anti-typical grace, not type and shadow grace, but the real thing, Christ himself. True grace has come by Jesus Christ. So now we know that John is telling his readers that they are now finding in Christ all the fullness that was depicted in the law of Moses and their types and shadows. But when we come to Colossians and Ephesians, we discover that the fullness there has to do with the composition of this church and its association with Christ as head 
And no reference back to type or shadow. In fact, the types and the shadows are dismissed as having no place whatever. So, we read in Ephesians 1, the last verse, The church which is his body is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. What a statement to make of any company. The fullness of him who in his turn fills all things. And Ephesians 4 says he ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And the church which is the body of Christ, which is the fullness of him that filleth all things, must be a very extraordinary company and not to be confused with any other unless we've got specific statements so to do. So we have in Colossians chapter 2, it says, um, in, instead of being led away, verse 8, by uh, vain, deceitful philosophy, tradition and rudiments, he says, the reason is this, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are filled to the full in him. So here's the fullness of Ephesians and Colossians, and we can leave the fullness of John to work its own blessed way to those who belong to that company. Well, again, in an earlier study in this series, I drew your attention to the need there is to distinguish between children and sons. And you cannot do that by using the authorised version, alas. But the revised version in this particular is useful because they've drawn attention in a margin that they are giving you in every occurrence except when it speaks about the, the children of Israel. I don't think any of us now would adopt the ordinary way of saying the sons of Israel, but that's what they ought to say. The sons of Israel, not children, sons. See, uh, all sons may be children, but all children are not firstborn sons, heirs and, and so on. They're having the adoption. So we've got now in the, uh, in the uh, John's Gospel, we have children of God. You want to correct that passage in John, the first chapter, which we had in front of us. It says that um, to them gave he power to be called the sons of God isn't true. It isn't true. To them gave he power or authority to be called children of God. But when you come to Paul's epistles, he's ministering to the sons. And the son is a distinctive calling and is associated with the word adoption. And we found that there were three companies in the Bible that have the adoption. There's Israel according to the flesh, who will one day enter into their position as the firstborn on the earth. There are those who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who are ministered to by Galatians, and whose uh, sphere is Jerusalem, which is above Galatians chapter 4. They have the adoption, and they are called sons. And then we have Ephesians chapter 1, going back before the foundation of the world, and they have an adoption. Well, there's no sonship outside adoption. No being an heir of God outside adoption. So that you see, unless you can prove this from John's Gospel, you'll be very much like the man in the very, in the very parable that our Lord spoke, who somehow got into the wedding feast, but he didn't stop there. How came this now in hither not having the wedding garment? And it was excluded. So there we have these features. Now we did notice that in the third chapter of John's Gospel, our Saviour speaking to Nicodemus and finding that he didn't follow as he should, he said, now, isn't it extraordinary, Nicodemus? You're the teacher in Israel. You belong to the Sanhedrin, the great council, and you don't know these things. I've only been telling you earthly things. 
In the Old Testament you could discover the question of new birth if you only allowed the prophets to speak. But he said, what's the good of me, or what good would it be for me to go on to tell you heavenly things if you won't even believe earthly things? Well, that is a little suggestion, I think. An encouraging suggestion to us all. Because if you could put it the other way around, you could also say, but Nicodemus, if I found that you were already believing the earthly things and were desirous of going on, I could tell you more. So we do say this, that any amount of God's people who have come into the light of salvation and truth and the gift of eternal life by some text out of John's Gospel, some of those had been led on by the Spirit of God to read the last epistles of Paul and have come right into the light and liberty of this high and holy calling. But it doesn't mean to say that John's Gospel, which was the door into that calling, is the calling itself. There's no stopping, but you must believe the truth before you can enter into its blessings, and so you don't find the teaching of the membership of the body of Christ in John's Gospel. What you have is the basic thing. It's no good talking to anybody about the distinct callings in the Scriptures if that particular person is dead. And what does it matter to him whether you agree about the earth or the heavens if a person's dead? But supposing a person has now the gift of life, then he may begin to inquire, what is my hope? Where is my blessing to be enjoyed? And that's where dispensational truth comes in. So John's Gospel doesn't make it very plain what company is ministering to? What he does say is, this has been written that you may have life. Life through his name. And if you go on, there's nothing to stop you. If you stop where you are, well that's where you'll be. And so we, we realise that there are some things in John's Gospel which are written in the light of and in the fact of a revelation being already given to the Apostle Paul and enjoyed by many believers. Well then, we have the other indications in John's Gospel. You remember uh, John the Baptist is quoted uh, contrasting his own ministry with that of Christ. He says that, uh, perhaps I better turn to that passage in case I misquote it. John the third chapter. And here for the moment we also have that other distinctive title given to John the Baptist which does not occur anywhere else. He says uh, in verse 28 of chapter 3, oh, verse 27 of chapter 3, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. Well, there's a definite statement in John's Gospel that John the Baptist was the friend of the bridegroom. This is entirely in harmony with John's ministry gathering guests for the wedding. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And earlier in this chapter, chapter, we have an emphasis upon the ascension. Um, verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how should ye believe if, if I tell you heavenly things? doesn't say he did tell him heavenly things, but how should you believe if I did? 
and no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So there's a stress on the ascension. And that is one of the features of John's Gospel that is distinct from the others. If you were to ask anybody without preparation, where would you look for the references to the ascension? Well, you most likely say in the last chapter of Matthew or Mark or Luke. But it's John's Gospel where you get the stress of the ascension. And it looks as though he had a reason for that and it was written in the light of the revelation that the Apostle Paul had received, the ascended Christ being, of course, absolutely necessary for Paul's teaching. Uh, perhaps you'd like to pick up one or two of these references to the ascension, just to revive the thought. There's this one in chapter 3. He hath ascended. And in chapter 6, we have um, verse 62. What, and if, I, if he shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before... And in chapter 13, we have, in the second half of John's Gospel, when he's speaking to his own, it says, um, Knowing this hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. And in verse 3, Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God. There is that emphasis. And the other scattered suggestions, but we get the last one, a very, very definite one in chapter 20. After the resurrection and revelation of himself to Mary, it says in chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So we have a strong emphasis on the ascension in John's Gospel, which is uh, suggestive of a, a peculiar aspect of its calling. I've already touched upon the, the fact that John the Baptist is spoken of as the friend of the bridegroom. You remember in Ephesians chapter 4 when it says, until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. It's wise for us to remember that there are at least two distinct words in the New Testament translated man. One is anthropos, which is a generic word covering men, women and children. But the word ania, which is in chapter 4, verse 13, is a word that's never used except of a full-grown man, never a woman. Well now, if, if the church is the bride of the Lamb, how could Paul have said that it was the perfect husband? That's a mixture, isn't it? It's not, it's not to be tolerated. And in order that you may see that this particular word, Ania, is translated husband, will you look at the next chapter in the same epistle to the Ephesians? Verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Now, every time you read the word husband, you're reading exactly the same word that we have in Ephesians 4.13. So the church of the one body has as its goal to reach the perfect husband. And John the Baptist is the friend of the bridegroom. And in John's revelation, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb and the bride has made herself ready. 
So we've got the complete male company. But it's not mixing up the bridegroom and the bride. There's no idea uh, that the bride is the perfect man. That's, that's horrible, that's nonsense. And so we keep these things distinct and all is in perfect harmony. And then in the fact that John, writing in chapter 10, says, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. Other sheep demand shepherds. Now, in you, when you've got Ephesians 4 open, you will find that they are provided for, even by Paul in his uh, reference to the gifts of the ascended Christ. Chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now the last office, you see, is a double one. Pastors and teachers. And that word pastor is exactly the same word that we have, I am the good shepherd. So we could translate it shepherds. So the risen ascended Christ gave some to be evangelists and some to be shepherds and teachers. Now we don't get any shepherds in uh, the ministry uh, afterwards with regard to Timothy. You do get shepherds in Peter's ministry. But here we have, for on one specific occasion in Ephesians, pastors included. Well, I think there's a reason for that. I could go without any qualms of conscience and speak fully and clearly from John's Gospel to a Gospel mission and not feel that I was obliged to keep on slipping in about the church which is the body and heavenly places and all that. No. There are those who see this mighty and lovely truth of the Ephesian position, but they can go to the great outside world and preach John 3.16 or other equivalent passages, and they may be doing the right thing. Some people have been criticised because, although they apparently have endorsed the teaching of Ephesians and the church which is the body of Christ, have had laid upon them and their hearts some poor district where the only thing they can get over Sunday after Sunday is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, they're, they're not to be criticised because they're not always interlarding it with teaching concerning heavenly places and part about principalities and that. They're doing the right thing. It doesn't mean that they're betraying the truth because they're seeking those who are the lost sheep who are yet to be gathered that our Saviour said uh, must have a ministry and there's nobody else to do it except those who are now believers in this present period. In the great prayer of John 17, we have that the world may know that thou hast sent me. And the world is to learn something from the uh, believers who are associated with John's gospel. He says, I pray not for the world, I pray for those whom thou hast given me out of the world, I pray for those who I'm sending into the world, I pray that the world may ultimately know through them this wonderful teaching. But when we come to our position, there's no statement in our calling that we are going to be very much understood by the world. Our, our antagonists are spiritual foes, world holders of this darkness. But we have revealed to us 
that principalities and powers are learning through the church the manifold wisdom of God. So even though we do, do not minister to others and we get criticised because we don't, there may be an unseen congregation many a time that we know nothing of, know nothing of and are not supposed to know anything of that are learning through the church the manifold wisdom of God. And then we go to the the figure of unity in the Ephesians and in Colossians, the figure of unity is the head, Christ, the body composed of fellow members, joints and bands, fitly joined together. The figure in John is, I am the vine and you are the branches. But do remember this, whenever you take a verse out of John 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17, those words were not spoken to anyone else except to the eleven apostles. Take one statement. How be it, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall bring to your remembrance whatsoever things I have said unto you. Well, that can't be said of you and me, because the Spirit of truth has come long ago. And what would he bring to remembrance that the Saviour said to me? Well, the Saviour's never said anything to me. That's got to be brought to my remembrance after the Spirit of Truth is come. So do remember that our Saviour devoted a period of time, almost at the end, knowing that his hour was come. He took a towel, he girded himself, he spoke to those, and the teaching of 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17, 17 is primarily addressed to fitting those apostles who were going to be sent by him out on that great ministry. We can gather a tremendous lot of truth and help and comfort by reading the way in which he cared for them, but be careful we don't take things to ourselves that were never written for us so to do. So we have in the one, the head and the members, and I am the vine and you are the branches, and one branch was going to be cast out. And that one branch, if you study the structure of that whole section, is balanced by the fact that Judas was the one, Judas was the one that betrayed him. He came several times. He was the branch that was cut off. And then we have a reference to before the foundation of the world. This is the one passage outside Paul's epistles where we're taken back to that period. Would you go back to John 17 just to see what is said? He says in verse 24, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, now, uh, that may be taken by some of God's people to include themselves, but remember it was said primarily of those apostles that were given him, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now there it stops. If there nothing else had been written, no one would have had the timidity of saying that because Christ said he was loved before the foundation of the world, that anybody else was associated with it. We would turn to chapter and verse right through the New Testament where it says, Since the foundation of the world, come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is the one exception that Christ here is spoken of as being loved. But when we come to our epistle, here's the marvel of it. We are spoken to, we are spoken of as being loved. 
before the foundation of the world. Don't you remember in Ephesians 1? According as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The very words that are used of Christ are used in Ephesians 1 of the members of his body. But in John's Gospel, this is never passed on to anybody else. In John 17, it's only telling you, they shall behold that glory. For this one was loved before the foundation of the world, and that's all it says. So we honour the words which the Holy Ghost teacheth. We compare spiritual with spiritual. We leave them as they are written, and we do not mix these high callings, the one or the other, together. And then we have, in my father's house are many mansions, or many abiding places. It's a very odd thing to think in a house you've got mansions, because the word mansion to us seems to be a synonym for a large house itself. It's the word abide that comes so many times in that gospel. Abiding. And here we have many abiding places. What those abiding places may be, we may not know. The Father's house is actually the term used in the same gospel to refer to the temple. And in the temple, there were places for the ministers of the, of the word of God in the temple, uh, little cells that they could occupy. And so many of us have taken John 14 entirely to ourselves and then we wonder what mansion we are going to have in the Father's house. Well, it may have nothing whatever to do with that. This has to do with those apostles to whom he was speaking and telling them that just as in the Old Testament the priests had their appointed quarters like the infant Samuel and Eli they had their place in the Father's house so you will have your abiding places. And so you need not try to imagine how many abiding places or mansions are going to be in that house because it may have nothing whatever to do with the hope of the church or of a believer at this present time. Well then you notice just a few things at the bottom of this chart which seems to give a little bit of an evidence of distinction. John ministers to the world. There are more references to the word world in John's Gospel than in the rest of the New Testament. The world. Up till then, the world had been a great outside uh, sphere that was only touched in the centre. Go not into the way of the Gentiles was the, the word of our Saviour in the early part of Matthew. But Ephesians, that doesn't minister to the world. That administers, that ministers entirely to a, a, an elect company out of the world, the church, which is the body of Christ. John is, has been written to those who needed to have explained to them that the word rabbi meant a teacher. It's written to those who didn't know that the word Christ was an equivalent to the word Messiah. You see, that's all explained. And John's Gospel was written in order that you, out in the world, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, because that's the description that's given in the first chapter and you're supposed to understand it. Well, when we come to the Ephesians, there's no emphasis upon the Messiah or the Messianic prophecies. These go back before the foundation of the world and they go up beyond the very heavens. And he says, Paul declares as the prisoner of Jesus Christ that he is ministering a mystery that had been now revealed but up till that moment had been hidden. And consequently, it has a distinctive calling. And uh, John it's assumed in the first chapter of John that Israel failed to accept Christ. 
In the first chapter he came to his own, and his own received him not, but to them that did receive him. So we've got to the point in John's Gospel that Israel temporarily failed. Whereas you've got to read many chapters through the early Gospels to discover that they were going to be rejected, John assumes apparently the rejection has taken place. And then we, as we've said, we've got these other features which we've run over, and John particularly is associated with the eight signs. And no teaching that's built upon John's Gospel that shuts its eyes to the teaching of the eight signs can be accepted. John has committed himself that he has selected those eight signs under the guidance of the Spirit of God and with his own approval, most likely because God uses our minds. And if you can't find the membership of the body of Christ justified and completely taught by looking at those signs, then you should suspect very much that somebody is trying to intrude into John's Gospel that which was never intended to be there. You examine the the opening sign, the wedding of, at Cana of Galilee. And what does that teach you with regard to membership of the body of Christ? It may give you a little hint that the first sign was selected because the whole character of John's Gospel has to do with a wedding and the guests. That would be in harmony. But you can't have a wedding and guests at the same time teaching membership of the body of Christ for they're kept distinct. Well now when we come together next time, I want to make just one little addition. And that is, uh, there are other folks who have not sought to prove that the membership of the body of Christ is found in John's Gospel, but there are other folks who see it very clearly in the epistle to the Hebrews. And I thought that while we are de- dealing with one of these aspects of, I believe, wrong teaching, we might as well put another one in and give that a consideration at least on one for one study just to examine the claim that other folks make, that they can see all about this so-called mystery and all about the church which is the body of Christ in the epistle to the Hebrews, so that you see this truth is attacked by by our friends and fellow believers from more angles than one. And while we are to contend earnestly for the faith, we are not to be contentious, and I would rather set out the truth positively and let it speak for itself rather than argue the point round and round and never get any further. I commend to you who are listening, who may have been disturbed by some of these things, that you yourself go quietly into the teaching of the Gospel according to John, asking yourself at every step as you go, am I now being instructed by John as to the membership of the body of Christ? Is he revealing something which Paul said was exclusively revealed from heaven to him? And if you cannot find an an affirmative answer, then leave it. And go to the one apostle, who though he said he was less than the least of all saints, he declared that to him had been given this prerogative, that he should make all men see what is the dispensation of the mystery. Well, there we stand. We are sorry to think that some of God's people have been disturbed. But there we must stand. Because if John shares with the Apostle Paul, then the Apostle Paul has made claims that he had no right to. And if Paul could make claims that he had no right to, and they're endorsed in the scriptures of truth, well, where are we? The foundations upon which you rest are being, as it were, shaken. I think we'll leave it there, meeting together next time, with this runover of another attitude, which will perhaps be uh, helpful to compare 
and then let the word of God have its own way with those who may be considering this at a distance from us.